Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. James chapter 1, verses 21 through 25 could not be more foundational to our subject tonight. That being application. How does it work in real life? Uh, We have taken an overview of what we call the interpretive or hermeneutical process. We then looked at the issue of observation. What do I see? Uh, Interpretation. What does it mean? And now tonight we look at the next step, application, how does it work in real life? And indeed, the Bible is not uh, silent on the crucial aspect of application when it comes to understanding, interpreting the Bible. Indeed, James in chapter 1, beginning with verse 21, says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow, it could be translated the abundance of wickedness, And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So there he clearly speaks to the issue of the mind, embracing the word, embracing the gospel. Then verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. For if this is what you do, you deceive yourself. He gives us an illustration. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. He is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, and the implication is he sees that he needs to shave, or he sees that he needs to wash his face. He sees that there's something that needs to be done with his hair, with his face. But he observes himself, and he goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, the the Bible functions like a mirror that shows you the law of God that will set you free, that is, the law of the gospel, and the one that continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And so James is very clear that he expects us to be both hearers of the word and also doers of the word. And that then, of course, brings up the issue of application. As I say at the top of that second page there, we're going to clothe our truth with overalls. And we're going to ask the question, how can biblical truth change my life? Now, as we begin the process of application, note with me, first of all, it is always built on interpretation. Indeed, if the interpretation is wrong, the application will be wrong. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that your application will be heresy. 
Sometimes I have sat under well-meaning pastors who did not teach or preach heresy. They, they preached the truth. But what truth they preached had nothing to do with the biblical text in front of them because they had wrongly interpreted it, if they'd interpreted it at all. Of course, coming out of their uh, Christian context, they were able to still say things that were true, things that were correct, things that indeed would apply to my life, but they had gotten the interpretation wrong, and so they took that text and made it say something that that text was not saying at all. But again, don't misunderstand me. It's one thing for someone to interpret the text incorrectly. It's another thing for someone to teach heresy, to teach that which is false and untrue. Again, sometimes even in seminary chapel, we will have persons show up, and they're well-meaning, but they will misinterpret the text, and my students will know that they misinterpret the text. And it's just unfortunately indigenous to uh, seminary students and college students that become hypercritical. And they can't listen to anything without sending it through the sieve and sending it through the mill and giving it, you know, the, 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 the most strict and, and difficult examination. And I try to help them understand, look, guys, there have been times when I've heard men come in and in terms of explaining the Bible, they did not do a very good job. But those men have walked with God so long. They know our Lord so well. I would still gladly sit under their instruction because out of the overflow of their life, they share truth. Now, that's not to excuse the fact that they have misinterpreted the text. What I don't want us to become is cynical and to rule out and run off and not consider what people say when perhaps they miss it. But on your part and my part, we should be different. And so we understand if the interpretation is wrong, the application will be wrong. So never attempt to apply the text before observing the text and interpreting the text. Now, I have six steps we're going to walk through quickly concerning the problems, first of all, to application, or six steps about the issue of application. Number one, be aware of the problems to application. Howard Hendricks makes an observation. Some stop the hermeneutical process before it is complete. And this is a very striking image. Hendricks says observation and interpretation without application is abortion. You actually bring the baby forth prematurely. Let the baby go full term. In other words, our goal is not to fill our heads with information. We're not against filling our heads. But that, if that is all that you do, in many ways you are worse off than you were before. Because I've said this several times on Wednesday night. Revelation brings responsibility. The more you know the greater is your accountability before God. And therefore, it's a dangerous thing to learn more but not live better. And so the Bible, as Howard Hendricks says, was not written to make us smarter sinners. No, the Bible is written to make us holy saints. But sometimes we stop the process before it is complete. Secondly, we sometimes substitute our knowledge for experience. And again, a key question to ask yourself is, do I know a lot more or do I live a lot better? And remember, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 says, knowledge by itself will puff you up. But love joined to knowledge will build you up. And so we do not wish to substitute knowledge for the life-changing experience that should take place when the Word of God transforms and makes us new. Thirdly, we like to apply to areas we already are working on 
and we will neglect new avenues of need. For example, if I might just use you as my confessional tonight, I'm still working very diligently to sanctify my right leg and my right foot when I'm in an automobile. The fact of the matter is I have made substantial contributions to various road systems in various states now for going on, oh my goodness, well over 30 years. In fact, I am in triple digits in most of the states and even in four digits in some of them. I do not say that with any pride. I say that with a a, a conviction of heart that I need to be doing better. Obviously, I don't think I'm doing better enough or feeling bad enough about it yet. But the fact of the matter is... When I hear someone start talking about abiding by the law, and then they start messing around with the speed limits that are posted on our roads, I I get uncomfortable. I'd rather him talk about uh, cussing and smoking and drinking. That's what I wish he'd be. Amen, brother. Give it to him. That's not a problem for me, any of those areas. But, you know, something along the lines of obeying the, the law signs of the speed limits, yeah, I, I'm still kind of struggling in that. And so we love to apply to areas that we're really good at. But some of those other areas, you know, we begin to get a little uncomfortable. They start preaching on the lack of a prayer life, or they begin to preach on the lack of being a personal soul winner. They begin to address the issue of not spending good time in Bible study, or maybe you're not treating your wife well, or maybe you're not treating your parents as you ought, and all of a sudden, you know, he just needs to move on to something else. Or maybe we talk about giving. Oh, my goodness. And it's amazing to watch people's faces sometimes contort and their bodies begin to kind of move in a rather uncomfortable way. And I immediately know that, you know, I've thrown a rock out there and I've hit the right dog. And you just soon I move on and talk about something else. So, again, we're all like it's, it's part and parcel of our sin nature that we're happy to apply in areas we're working on and proficient at. We don't really want to investigate those new areas of need. Letter D, we will rationalize the process to fit our present lifestyle. Now let me give you a statement that if you're a note taker, you ought to write somewhere because it's a very helpful and insightful statement that, that I've come across in my study over the years. I've often said, and many times will say, what you believe will determine how you live. And that is true. What you believe will determine how you live. However, how you live sometimes will determine what you believe. You will change your theology. To justify your lifestyle. And what you live will begin to influence and impact what you believe. I have two precious former students, both of whom have divorced their wives. In one case, no debate. Adultery was at the issue. And the other one, I can't prove it, but I strongly suspect it. In contacting both of those men... They said to me, well, I just don't see the Bible like I used to. I think you were too narrow in some of your interpretations. I think you were too hard in your view on this issue of divorce and so on. And what had happened is they were now changing their theology to match up with their lifestyle. And if you and I are not careful... We can be guilty of doing the very same thing. Letter E, we may allow an emotional experience to be substituted for a volitional decision. That is the risk that we run sometimes when we gather for corporate worship 
and the music is moving and the preaching is stellar and our hearts just begin to soar before the Lord. And then we get out of here and on Monday, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. That's why I, uh, I'm not all that enthusiastic about worship services that come along the lines of a pep rally for Jesus. I'm just not. Now, I like all sorts of music, and I can clap my hands and even raise my hands every now and then and beat, uh, t- tap my foot. And I have a wide variety of, uh, of appreciation for music. But the fact of the matter is, worship is not a pep rally for Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, if all you do is have a wonderful, wowy experience for a couple of hours, and then the next day and throughout the week nothing has changed, then you've not really worshipped. And you and I have not really met the one true and living God. We cannot allow an emotional experience to be substituted for a volitional decision. F, pressures from society, cause us to compromise what we know to be true. When I lived in Kentucky for eight years, I was amazed, amazed at how hesitant many Baptist preachers were to speak to the issue of gambling. Amazed. I'd been in Georgia. Man, Baptist preachers wore that thing out. I've been in Texas. They beat it like a dog. Came to North Carolina. They kept working it over. Got to Kentucky. I mean, after all, this is horse country. We got the derby. In fact, it even amazed me more that a good number of Baptist pastors would be hesitant to even speak against the liquor crowd because of the profitability of Kentucky bourbon. Amazing thing. And having been in North Carolina and also in Kentucky, which, by the way, is actually the number one tobacco-producing state in America. North Carolina's number two. Amazed at how many men would hesitate to talk about the fact that putting something into your system like tobacco is damaging severely the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are other things we ought to talk about as well, like gluttony and other things of that nature. But the fact of the matter is, I don't think you can build me a very good argument biblically to justify either the wisdom or the witness benefit of tobacco. I just don't think you're going to be able to pull that off. But again, because of the culture, the context, hey, let's talk about racism in a North Carolina or a Georgia pulpit. And I've done it. And I've watched people begin to get hot with me. I can remember a few years ago, I may have even shared this with you, but it's worth repeating, that I was in Wilmington doing a revival. Oh, they liked me. They loved me. I was just up there preaching about Jesus and his glory and his goodness, and they were all just happy, happy, happy. And one night I was in 2 Corinthians 5, and it was not in my notes. And I uh, decided that when it got down there to a verse that said, We judge no man according to the flesh. Though we once judged Christ in this way, we no longer do this any longer. And so I don't know what possessed me, but I said, you know, folks, I just need to tell you something. If I had to make a choice between one of my four sons marrying a white girl that would make them miserable or marrying a black girl that loved Jesus and would be a great wife and mother, not only would I prefer that they marry the black girl, I would do the wedding. Yeah, I need some amens. If you can't say amen to that, you got sin in your life and you need to go home and repent tonight. Oh, it 
you, 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 you would have thought that a blue northerner had blown into that auditorium in about 1.2 seconds. And in fact, the next day when I was picked up by the pastor, he was nervous as a cat. And finally, after a, I don't know, 30 minutes or so, he said, uh, what possessed you to say what you said last night? And I said, which part? I knew which part. <laughs> which part? Man, my, now let me say up front, my church is not a racist church, but my phone's been ringing off the hook last night and this morning. I said, well, if your church is not a racist church, then why is your phone ringing off the hook? I even had a lady that night, the next night, we were having fellowship supper come up to me and she said, you really didn't mean what you said last night, did you? I said, no, ma'am, I lie in the pulpit every chance I get. She blushed. It embarrassed her. She said, I, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it like that. And then if I'm lying, may God strike me dead. She said, isn't there some place in the Bible that says birds of a feather flock together? I said, you know, I, uh, I've been studying the Bible a long time, and I, I just can't remember ever reading that. But if you can find it for me. I'll be glad to go up there tonight and tell all the folks that I got it wrong last night. And she said, uh, it's not in the Bible. I said, no, ma'am, it's not in the Bible. And she says, well, don't you think there are problems with interracial marriages? I said, I think there would be challenges. But is it sin? No. Is it contrary to the teachings of the Word of God? No. In fact, the only type of marriage the Bible speaks against, against is that of a believer and an unbeliever. Second Corinthians six is pretty clear about that. But again, my point is pressures from society can cause us to compromise what we know to be true. Letter G is kind of related. Our prejudice and spiritual truth come into conflict. And again, I'm quoting Howard Hendricks. Most of us don't think we just kind of rearrange our prejudice. And then ignorance. Sometimes we don't apply because we haven't understood the text, and we're not even sure how we should apply the text. So one of the things we can do here, and I'll pick up the pace now, we should look to the original audience of the text, and we then look to ourselves, and we ask four key questions. Question number one, how are we like them? And the fact of the matter is, you're a lot more like them than you sometimes think. Number two, how are we unlike them? And, of course, we are removed by at least 2,000 years, and so there's going to be some substantial differences there. Number three, how should we be like them? And then number four, how should we be unlike them? And if you'll put those four questions on the table, you'll begin to find some ways to apply this particular text. Secondly, you need to know the interpretation of the text bridging what we call the hermeneutical horizons or the hermeneutical gap. In other words, beware of what we call the error of the fork. So what does that mean, Danny? It means to take the wrong path in your interpretation is to diverge more and more from the truth and therefore to be out of line with your application. In other words, if you're going down a road and you come to a fork, if you go down the wrong road, the further down that road you go, the further away you get from the truth, both in terms of what you know and the truth in terms of how that text should be applied as well. Top of page three, number three, know your applicational situation. Remember, the interpretation is one, but the application is many. So first of all, know yourself. 
If you're teaching the Bible, this, this morning I was in Jude 17 through 23. And part of uh, Jude is dealing with uh, the words of our Lord through the apostles about remembering that false teachers are coming. Not a big problem for me. I believe that. I gave multiple illustrations of that. Then he talked about how it is that we can remain in the love of God. And he talked about growing up in the faith, praying in the spirit and looking for the coming again of Christ. Well, I know myself. I know that for the most part, I'm, I'm doing pretty well in growing in the faith. I, I, I am a theologian. I taught theology for years. I love to study the scriptures. So that, that's not too difficult for me. Uh, looking for Christ uh, and his coming, the older I get, the more precious that becomes. But praying in the spirit, I would be again the first to confess to you that if you were to ask me tonight, what do you think is the single weakest area in your personal spiritual life, I would tell you, I don't think my prayer life is all that it ought to be. I think it should be more consistent. I think it should be more fervent. I think that that's, without any question, the weakest area of my life. So I I try when I'm working through a text. What are the strengths of your own life? What are your weaknesses? It will help you both build confidence, but also, as you see in the next one, it will encourage humility as you recognize and acknowledge your own weaknesses and inability. So you begin by asking God to speak to you in the text. But then you've got to know your people, their age, their background, their individual needs, and so on. I would not teach exactly the same in terms of application. If I were speaking to a bunch of um, grade school children... Or if I were speaking to a bunch of single adults or married adults, or maybe I'm out doing something with those who are married to have kids, or maybe I'm speaking to a senior citizen group. I am not going to change the meaning of the text. It never changes. But how I apply the text to different age groups, to different uh, uh, geographical, I'm a little bit more um, playful. Don't take this the wrong way. Sloppy. When I'm speaking to country folks, I grew up with country folks. My granddaddy was a Georgia, uh, Douglasville, Georgia dirt farmer. But if I'm in North Dallas, Houston, Raleigh, and I'm speaking to a church that is filled with highly educated, highly successful, whatever that means, business types, uh, I'm going to cross my T's and dot my I's. I'm not going to use much slang. I'm not going to uh, draw out like I'm very accustomed to doing, being a good Georgia boy. No, I'm going to be very... And what if I'm in the uh, northeast or the northwest? I already sound like, you know, Gomer Pyle, even though I'm not as bad as I used to be. I mean, they just think all of us are a bunch of hicks. And so I am going to work. I'm not going to be like uh, Paige Patterson, who does not give you any idea of what kind of a particular background he's coming from. I'm not going to do that because I I can't contort my mouth that long. It makes my jaws hurt just to even try it for a few minutes. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be who I'm not. But I'm going to adjust some things based upon who I am speaking to. Number four, 
State your application in the form of a universal principle. That means it's true any place, any time, under any circumstances. Ultimately, we point people to Christ. We want to be in line then, letter A, with the needs and the interests and the questions, the problems of today. This is the key to relevance. So there are two histories in interpretation and application that you're bridging. Let's just take the book of Colossians. You're studying Colossians chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. You know that that was a book that revealed truth then in A.D. 60 to 63. That's great. That's wonderful. But Raleigh or Durham, North Carolina in the year 2006 is not Colossae in the year 60 to 63 A.D. And so I've got to take that truth and let it be, in a sense, reborn or rebirth in the now. Again, the meaning of the text does not change. When he tells us in chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were made that were made, that was true then and that's true now. That never changes. But he in the first century was dealing with a growing movement that was probably a form of incipient Gnosticism. Most of us wouldn't really care a whole lot about what that is. But today we've got false teaching about Jesus everywhere. It may be the Mormons. It may be the Jehovah's Witnesses. It may be the Christian scientists. It may be Islam. It may be Judaism. It may be Hindu. It may be Buddhist. It may be a thousand and one different things. So if I am affirming the deity the creatorship of Christ, and that He alone reveals God to us, I'm going to adapt that to the context in which I find myself. And if I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah, you better believe, it. hopefully with grace and kindness, I'm going to set in opposition the biblical portrait and the Mormon portrait. I'm going to do it. If I'm in an area that, for whatever reason, is being influenced by New Age ideology or being influenced by whatever, I may adjust the application to fit the needs of a Raleigh-Durham in the year 2006. So be in line with the needs, interests, questions, and problems of the day. Letter B, be in harmony with the general tenor of Scripture. We call this the analogy of faith. In other words, Scripture will not contradict Scripture. If I'm going to apply a text... I'm going to make sure that what I apply is consistent with what the Bible says elsewhere about this particular issue. All right? Then let her see. Be specific enough to indicate a course of action. And there are at least 13 questions that you can just run very quickly through your mind as you study a text. Let's just think for a moment again of the, of the James text that we just looked at. And we'll just take verse 22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. All right? One. Is there an example for me to follow? Well, not really in that text, though I could extrapolate one. Is there a sin to avoid or confess? Well, if I've committed the sin of the theologian filling up my head but not living it out, yes, I need to confess to God, Lord, I've got a full head but an empty heart. I know a lot, but I'm not living very well. Yeah, there might be a sin to abort or confess. Is there a promise to claim? Well, not in that particular verse. There is later when he says in verse 25 that the doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. In other words, is there a promise to claim tonight? Absolutely. You not only hear the word, but do the word. And God promises he will bless your life. Is there a prayer to repeat? Not in this one. 
Is there a command to obey? Absolutely. Don't you just be a doer of the word. You be a, uh, a, a, don't just be a hearer of the word. You also be a doer of the word or you're deceiving yourselves. Is there a condition to me? Is this a good verse to memorize? Well, I'd say that's a great verse to memorize. Is there an error to avoid? Absolutely. Just being a hearer and not a doer? Is there a challenge to face? Yes, because evidently we are naturally inclined to be hearers and not doers. It's just kind of the way we're wired. It's, it's indigenous to the sin nature. And so, yes, there is an error to avoid, a challenge to face. Is there a principle to apply? Well, I would say again, yes. Is there a habit to change, to, to start or to stop? Is there an attitude to correct? Is there a truth to believe? And I promise you, folks, you apply, apply those 13 questions to any text, you're not going to have a difficult time finding a point of application. But let's take it in a different direction. Top of page four, number five. Saturate your mind in terms of relationships. After all, Christianity is best understood as a series of new relationships. And so education, social life, business life, church life, values, thought life, home life, sex life. He says here, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, deceiving yourselves. How might that apply to you that are in uh, school, still working on your education? How would that apply in your social relationships, or maybe let's just say business. What does it mean for you to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only when it comes to the way you relate to those that you work with or those that you live with or those that we interact with here at church? So as you think about these relationships, just very quickly, A, probe your passage with questions regarding the relationships of life like those that are above. B, take the leash off your mind. Kind of let it run freely at this point, just seeing how many relationships are affected by this truth. See, at this point, forget the critical. Examine every possible area, even if it seems trivial. Some of them you'll say and see are trivial. But others you may explore and find out, my goodness, there's a really good point of application here that I would never have thought of. And then here's the best way to do it. Letter D, just plug into real life. Just plug into into real life. For example, be realistic. Concentrate on the concrete versus abstract thinking. You're going to be a, a doer of the word as a godly husband. All right, let me make it concrete for you. Do you study the word with your wife? Do you pray with your wife? Those of you that have children, do you help your wife? With the care of the kids, are you willing to change a dirty diaper? Are you willing to haul out to the trash pail all those nasty diapers? Are you willing to clean a dirty diaper? Are you willing to help her wash the dinner dishes? Are you willing to take out the trash and replace the trash bag? Are you willing to be there when she needs you? That means maybe for some of you seminary types, turning off the computer, putting down your books, just going maybe and sitting beside her and saying nothing. My son Jonathan called me. He's just been married now for about nine months. He said, Dad, did you find it more difficult to get your study done after you got married? I said, well, uh, son, I don't want to answer that question while your mother's around, but call me back when she's not, and I'll be glad to answer it. And, of course, I said, yes, it was more difficult to study after I got married. He said, well, you know, it's, it's, even if you come into the same room with them, I said, that's a good start. He says, yes, but if you have a book in your hand, it doesn't count. I said, that's right. I, it's not fair, but it's right. You're right. If you, if you come in and you sit down beside her, 
But you open up a book, as far as she is concerned, it doesn't count. It, it, it doesn't, you're really not in the room with her as far as she is concerned. He says, yes. I said, son, you've got to learn to be a really good manager of your time. And hey, you got a baby coming in September. You, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I said, but that's what it means for you to be an Ephesians 5 kind of husband. Sometimes it just means turning off the computer, putting up the books, Going in there and just sitting beside her. If she wants to talk, fine. If she doesn't want to talk, that's fine too. But you get your buns in there and spend time with her. There we are just tracking into and locking into real life. Think vicariously. Try to see through the eyes of others. You guys, again, try to look at life through the eyes of your wife. What's really important to her? What does she build her life around? What is it that makes her in her own heart before the Lord believe that she is successful? Men and women usually define success differently. They see it differently. For you, I know it's accomplishing this or accomplishing that. But for most women, they define success in terms of the relationships of life. Even if they are in the business world, even if they're in the workplace, most women don't talk about, here's what I got accomplished at work today. More often than not, they'll talk about their family, their children. Relationships are what really drive them. Expose yourself to people in life. Just become a student of people. People are funny. I mean, they're flat out hilarious. And they do such interesting things. Sometimes they do really smart things. More often than not, they do really dumb stuff. But it's just kind of fun to watch them. So just, you know, relax. Watch people. You'll learn how to apply the Scripture all over the place. Then number six. Consciously practice. I'll move through this rapidly. Remember, you have not applied until you have practiced. Number two, there is great danger in trafficking in unlived truth. Vance Hadner said it just exactly right. What we live is what we believe. Everything else is just so much religious talk. Letter C, the practice itself will be a commentary on your understanding of the truth. D, you cannot adequately apply to others what you have not applied to yourself. And letter E, you cannot be diligently applying everything, but you should be consciously applying something. I heard the other day from someone, this absolutely, Brother Bill, just nearly floored me. In a survey done by, and I forget what Christian organization it was, it was blind, a blind survey. 30% of pastors do not tithe. 30% do not tithe tithe. No wonder they have a hard time preaching about giving because the word hypocrite keeps jumping up and biting them on the nose every time that they do. And guys, for those of us that have been called into ministry, how dare we get up here and challenge our people to give, to pray, to be a soul winner, to study the word, to love their wife, to care for their kids if we're not doing it. The lack of credibility will absolutely undercut your ministry and will make void the ability for you to impact your people with the gospel. So two questions at the bottom of page four. What am I trusting God for right now? And secondly, what is my plan of action? Top of page five, Fenelon said the essence of Christianity resides in the will. Maturity, therefore, is not a technical process of addition, but a dynamic process of growing. One reason why people do not change is they have no plan of action. So in summation, when it comes to application, how should my character 
my conduct, my conversation be affected by the Word of God? How should this truth affect my, my attitude, my knowledge of God, my behavior, my relationships, my motives, my values and priorities, my character? I mean, guys, there's just no limit to the ways and the areas that the Bible can indeed change your life. And so, again, application requires a decision and a specific plan of action or to allow the Holy Spirit to make scriptural principles part of us. Now, please don't miss this next paragraph, because if you do, the whole thing could go down the drain. A word about habits. This is where the rubber really does meet the road. Now, note this. You might even want to underline this. It takes about three months to change a habit. And the enemy knows this very well. In other words, you can do it for a week, two weeks, three weeks, maybe a month. But it takes about three months for you to actually alter a particular habit of lifestyle in your own life. So be ready for conflict and failure mixed with success. But keep this in mind. The Lord has already promised you that he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. So just keep plugging. Just stay with it. And as I said to someone recently, I'm kind of stubborn. And I determined I'm just not going to let the devil beat me. I'm just not. And I'm not going to let the flesh beat me. It may knock me down, but I'm getting back up and I'm going to take it on again. And it may knock me down again, but I'm getting back up. And I know that by God's grace and through his strength, eventually, I'm going to be conformed to the image of Christ. So why would I ever quit? Why would I ever get so discouraged that I would give up and drop out? So, finally, in bringing the Scripture to life, view your life as a series of these new relationships. And in particular, think about your relationship with God. Think about your relationship with yourself. Page 6, think about your relationship with others. And finally, think about your relationship with Satan. That's a good place to close. When I'm studying this text, is there a person to resist? Is there a device of the evil one to recognize? Is there a temptation I need to resist, a sin to avoid and confess, a piece of spiritual armor to wear? And again, you ask these questions, and I promise you, you'll not find any difficulty in seeing how the Word of God really does work in real life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have indeed called us to be both hearers and doers of the Word And, Lord, sometimes we can deceive ourselves into thinking, if I know more, that's enough. And, Lord, I know personally that's not true. Uh, There's some areas in my life where I know so much that I'm not uh, responding to, that I'm not putting into practice. And, Lord, you really have no obligation to teach me anything else until I start acting upon what you've already taught me. Basically, Lord, I confess to you tonight and to my brothers and sisters, I know more than I'm doing. And so, Lord, I would ask that you would give me a heart and a will to start doing what you taught me, knowing that then you can entrust me with more. And until then, there's no reason for you to entrust me with anything at all. And Lord, I thank you that the word does work. It's true, but it also works and it changes and transforms lives. And Lord, ultimately, that's what we're after for ourselves and for those that we teach. Thank you again for your precious word. May we indeed be both hearers and doers of it. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. 
If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.